say something. Hello. Adventure. Love. Connection. Risk. Passion. Evolution. Play. Life. The Archetypal Tarot Podcast. Provocative mythology for the 21st century. Hello, podcast listeners. This is Julienne. And this last podcast of 2015 is a conversation that I had with my dear friend and mentor, Jim Curtin. Jim is a spiritual director, archetypal counselor, and retreat leader. He was also a Hollywood talent manager for many years. He's the person that I learned the whole symbolic language of archetypes in movie from. And we both share a passion for film. And so we dug into a pretty wide-ranging conversation of movies, archetypes, and specifically what's represented in the Tower card. And we hope you enjoy this special edition of the Archetypal Tarot Podcast. So let us know what you think. Um, Find us on Twitter or Facebook. You can find the show notes at archetypist.com slash change. And on that page, you will find a special discount code for a really amazing audio course that Jim has put out called Embracing the Grace of Change. And we think you will really like it. And you're going to save 20%. So visit the show page at archetypist.com slash change. Thanks so much. So hi, Jim, and welcome to our humble little podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well, Julian, and thank you for inviting me. I'm sincerely excited to have you on this show. Um, a lot of uh, feedback that we've gotten from the audiences uh, so far um, really appreciate us when we talk about film. And mm-hmm. we have done the major arcana from the fool all the way through the world and done a, a show for each one. And with each one, I would mention not only the archetypes, in the tarot cards and the major arcana, but also some films that we thought related both to characters as well as the archetypal situations. And I'm just going to say it now, I owe you a huge debt of gratitude for uh, learning a lot of that language and that really just ability to see things in a way and look at things archetypally, especially with film. I learned so much from you, not to embarrass you, but a huge part of that has really just been learning through you and Carolyn Mace's I don't, school. I don't mind being embarrassed in this one. <laughs> well, it's wonderful. And, and um, I thought it would be kind of fun to talk about the archetypes in the, the tarot card, which is the tower, which mm-hmm. many, many people consider one of the spookiest most superstitious it shows up in a spread and it's like, uh, you know, it's the ending of something. It's chaos mm-hmm. and crumbling. I listened back to the show that we did almost three years ago about the tower and I was listening to back to what I talked about in terms of film. And I referenced a number of things. One of them was Castaway, which mm-hmm. I you taught you taught a number of years ago um, at CMED. And I also talked about The Hunger Games. And I know those are two films that you, you have written about before. And also I know you teach Castaway. So what are, what are your thoughts of the relationship of the meaning behind the, the Tower card and, and those films? Well, the ca- Castaway, you know, is one of my two or three favorite films to teach. 
And what it looks to me like in that film is the shattering of the reality I knew. Uh, that the reality that Tom Hanks knows at the beginning of the movie is completely shattered. All of his um, suppositions, all of his assumptions about life and what is of value is shattered by that. And when, by the end of the film, it's his notion of what is of value is completely changed. What's destroyed in it are, you know, I say in the kind of teaching that I do, that this teaching taken seriously will strip you of your illusions and rob you of your excuses. <laughs> and and I think that this is what happens when that collapse happens. Uh, you know, there's a, I think Richard Rohr is the first person I heard say this, is that we spend the first half of our lives uh, leaning our ladder against the, climbing the ladder of success, and then we get to the top and realize we've put the ladder against the wrong wall. Mm. And so what in, what in uh, Castaway is important is the destruction of a false god. Um, people wouldn't think of this maybe, but Tom Hanks in that movie is an idolater. He, he worships time. Uh, he's made time and efficiency his god. The, the slogan on the FedEx box is the world on time. Well, that's the kind of chronos time that devours us. Do you know that this is the time that eats us? So what happens to him? He's put in a place where there is no time, and it's very hard even to keep track of time. Uh, and so the god of time is useless to him on that island. That's perfect. The, the worship of time. And and I think in, you know, in the Hunger Games, I'm not as familiar with that, but what intrigues me about that and so many other of these young adult novels that are becoming films is that they're dystopian. Mm. That it's, it's, these are movies about, they're almost prophetic in the sense of the center cannot hold. That, that the towers that we've built, whether it's in the Hunger Games or... Um, Divergent. Divergent. They can't hold. They can't hold. That, that uh, I mean, they're really predictive of what's going on in our political election this year. Very much, it seems to me, it's I think why on one side of it you have Donald Trump and on the other Bernie Sanders. Mm. Uh, because uh, they keep building this Trump Tower. Yeah, think, think of, of it as Trump Tower. Yeah. And, and uh, it can't, it's like the Tower of Babel, it can't just keep rising. What's fascinating to me about this is that if I had to say one thing about him, I could say it about several of the candidates, but it's so clear to me about him, there's no introspection. There's no questioning of choices ever or, or the admission that we grow by our choices and mistakes. And so this tower just keeps getting built bigger and bigger and bigger. And to get that big, it has to get heavy and heavy and heavy, top heavy. Um, I won't make jokes about him being top heavy there. I just did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the reason I think that young people are so drawn to Bernie Sanders these are the young people that can see in what he's doing, leading a rebellion against the forces and things like the Hunger Games and Divergent, 
and uh, the giver. All of these. Uh, and all of them, to some degree, are rooted in the Wizard of Oz. If you see what's behind the curtain, the only difference is what's behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz is relatively harmless. What's behind the curtain in these dystopian movies is really pollution and and evil. Um, uh, in fact, what's amazing as you talk about it with the tower is in those dystopian movies, a small group of of people think it's their job to control everything else, and how they control it is with scarcity and the removal of choices. Um, and if you look at this election right now, I hope you don't mind my talking about politics. I'm addicted to this. I, <laughs> I, I wish I didn't have a TV, but I do. But but uh, there's there is um, the whole notion of choice, and I don't just mean in terms of Planned Parenthood, but the whole notion of choice is on the line in this election, in so many different ways. It's whether we empower you to choose or we choose for you because we know better. And that's what the young people in these dystopian novels, they don't buy it. It's a part of a cycle, you know, that there's a, uh, a destruction of the, the paradigm, the, the storyline it has been so far. And, and often before that, or as is actually a part of the whole process, it seems that this this tower-like, you know, building and then, you know, the destruction of it is a part of the process. It just doesn't take, sometimes it takes a decade, right? I just went to you um, at CMED, um, Richard Tarnas, Rick Tarnas, who's the author of uh, Passion of the Western Mind and um, Cosmos and Psyche, he lectured um, at the school uh, years ago and he was talking about the Pluto, he looks at it in astrological terms of, of the, uh, was it Pluto and Uranus, um, mm -hmm. those, those cyclical changes that we've seen time and time again, and, uh, you know, the, the revolution, evolution processes that, you know, we can see, you know, the most recently in the 1960s and the upheaval happening then, and we've been in this period for, you know, quite some time now. Um, mm -hmm at least since, what, 2005, 2006, so it's almost a decade, yep. and this, the effects of this, and, and whether you want to, you know, there's, whether you believe there's a causal relationship or not, historically, we see these epochs, and the, uh, you know, the, the politics are definitely showing that as well. There's such an incredible act of, lack of civility um, yeah. in, in politics to the point that most of us can't remember a time when there was civility in politics and that to me is is kind of scary because mm. you know it's become the new norm yeah but this the what do you say about the the destruction of the the false gods and the idea of the the looking at the hunger games in this almost science fiction dystopian um destruction is that what well, comes out of it for me is there's there's a great deal of potentiality you know um on the other side of that what we're seeing also is the archetype of the bully. Mm. It's interesting with Pope Francis, who is not a bully at all, combating the bullying of the traditional bullying of the hierarchical church. 
And if you look at Donald Trump, he's a bully. And if I mean, it's it's and and the the leaders in the Hunger Games are bullies. And so what we're what we're doing is bu- false put together bully the bully and the false god. Yeah. And and that uh, authentic divinity is not a bully. It's it, in fact it's just the opposite. It's it's you know it's the it's the lover among other things, but it's it's going from the bully. You know, what I went to get in my room was a book I think I've shown you, and I'm not all the way through it. Very heavy going. It's called Meditations on the Tarot, A Journey into Christian Hermeticism. And I just flashed to the uh, chapter on the tower, and I'm not there yet. But this writer who is a monk says the tower is about the dark night of the soul also. Mm-hmm. The sh- and it, it has to do, it's, it's, there's a mystical quality in it because what happens is reality is shattered, that disillusionment. There is a shattering of what we thought was true and trusted to be true. And, and we'll, we're still here, but, but our uh, coordinates aren't, which is very much what happens to Tom Hanks. He's put in a place where none of his coordinates are relevant. And so this is, I think this has to do with this chaos too. And, and that's very much true of the dark night. It's, it's not that anything is wrong particularly, you're no longer where you were, and you don't know where you are. Yeah. And the the necessary, the necessarily difficult process of letting those illusions go, because I think it's fairly easy um, for most people to even even if they've gone through a major tower like upheaval, yeah. is to go back and cling to what they know, what well, is comfortable, can. because mm-hmm. it it is it's what it's what we felt feels right you know even even that sort of like well intuitively i know this feels right but yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that you know you are in the place that you need to be or the the things that are surrounding you so running back t- and to try to recreate that tower right and um i think in the last, po- last podcast we had talked about the buddhist uh myth of um the the gentleman who created his um he had he literally had to build a tower every week and his and his great teacher would knock it down and that was part of his his lesson so you know at first he defended it right he had to defend that tower and then it would get knocked down by lightning striking it and that Mm -hmm. that is you know that is you know breaking of those illusions eventually even though it's going to be painful um yeah. is completely necessary. And I, I wanted to bring something up too because, uh, and I wanted to get your feelings on this based on what you're saying is if you look at the major arcana, the basically the, the full, you know, zero through 22, which is the world, this tower happens closer towards the end. It's card 16. And yeah. what precedes it is the devil, which we look at very much as addiction, but also, you know, the positive side of that is is the Dionysian, you know, revelry and enjoyment, you know, the sensual, uh, pure, sort of like a bodily enjoyment, and but also with, you know, the devil, there's addiction, right? Being chained, being a slave to that. The next card's the tower, which we're discussing now. 
and what comes after that is the star, the archetype of um, finding your true north, uh, yeah. you know, the, the true path, and that, that there is the process of that you can't get to the star without what you have built before, which might or might not have served you. All of that goes away, and what you end up walking with, if you embrace it, is all of those skills and relationships that have honed, have made it through that process and have become enriched. Yeah. There's another piece to this that is true in all the great myths, is that the road to heaven leads through hell. Mm, Exactly. That there's no roundabout. (laughs) There's no, uh, you can't go around hell, you have to go through it. That's true in the Odyssey, it's true in the Gospels. Um, you have to go through this hell to, uh, which is a cleansing, really. It's just part. It's part of the hero's journey, really. Is you have to go through hell. The it's funny. I just opened this book, and again, I haven't read the whole book yet. But it says that uh, the fifteenth, the devil is about, and I love this as as it, as the description of addiction. It's the intoxication of counter inspiration. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Then the 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 numbing. Yeah, it's it's the it's <laughs> it's advertising really. Yeah. Um, you know uh, where you want something that you uh, you're seduced into wanting something that you don't need and don't really want. And by necessity, the the process of the the breaking down of the tower, and yeah. our own uh, you know within our own psyche. That process, and and I like that you brought in the, the dark night of the soul, and 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 I think many times it is, I, I've experienced a few that I call the dark night of the ego, which mm-hmm. is kind of a tower process where those, who you think you are in terms of the self lowercase, yeah. gets stripped away, but it's the ego that takes those hits. And yeah, my sense is that the the soul is completely strong and present, but it's that ego that stands in front of it, that by necessity has to break down. Yeah, it does because, well, the ego will try, when we have those shocks of self-realization, the ego will say, don't tell anybody. We can keep this going if you just keep your mouth shut. Um, (laughs) It's terribly embarrassing. (laughs) It is, yeah, please, please. Yes, it's okay if you and I know you're a fake, but for God's sake, keep it to yourself or our plan will be ruined. So that's, uh, I think that's part part of what goes on too, is when, and I don't know these characters well, but in the Hunger Games, when, um, what's the heroine's name? Kat- Katniss. Uh, Katniss's authenticity starts to awaken people who are in the hierarchies of power. Uh, they have not been, They've not been um, encountered authenticity. They haven't encountered the real. And uh, it shocks them. And it's an incredible threat. <laughs> yes, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. It's very difficult, difficult to control people <laughs> when they're all being authentic. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I don't know a whole lot more about, you know, I, you know way more about the tarot than I do. But I can see the archetypal 
connections to a lot of this. And always the tarot reminds me of the hero's journey. We actually, we talk about it as an alternative Mm -hmm. in a way that they are, they are, um, while there are a lot of relationships between a lot of the stages, you can, you can essentially map a lot of what Campbell talked about in the hero's journey to the tarot. And in a previous podcast uh, earlier this year, with Craig Chalquist, who is a uh, depth psychology um, mm-hmm. professor, amongst many other things, deeply steeped in mythology, we talked about just calling it the tarotic journey because he used to teach the tarot's, uh, the huh. um, the hero's journey. But the tarotic journey, I more the more I've been working with this, and this is especially the five years of this podcast. To me, it is a much richer, inclusive story that we can work with because um, for a lot of reasons, partly because it includes a lot of the feminine archetypal and directly a feminine archetypal. And I think that's to the benefit of everyone, no matter their gender, but it also has a lot, a lot to do with relationship all the way through. I mean, certainly some of them really are more about the character and the individual, but if you look at it as a story and you can mix these cards up and tell the story any number of different ways, but I do think there is a beauty of the zero through the 22, the fool to the world, that is about connectivity, community, and relationship, which is really what I think is, I think is terribly missing. And that's, that's our greatest um, cultural, personal um, growth place is in connection and, and relationship, which is... Well, yeah, I would make an argument that... The hero's journey is really largely one of individuation and that you can't be in relationship until you complete that part. You know? So because the hero's, gener- hero's journey is about me, what I want to accomplish. Uh, it's uh, in um, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, they say the hero is an intermediate archetype, that it's not a permanent one. That it's the journey from the hero's journey is one from immaturity to maturity. And to be in relationship, real relationship, you have to have uh, achieved a certain degree of, of maturity and individuation. And I think that, I don't think that, the, I mean, the tarot is a much older set of myths and symbols than the hero's journey in terms, I mean, Campbell's. Campbell's interpretation of it, yeah. Campbell's interpretation of it, which is wonderful. But uh, the thing about Campbell or any of these teachers uh, is that Campbell offers us a way of seeing. He doesn't say this is the way of seeing. It's like my dear friend Carolyn Mace. Her model is a very rich way of seeing. But if you make it the way of seeing, you know, the, the gospel of seeing... It loses its power. All of these people who teach us ways of seeing, these are lenses through which we see. They're not what we see. They're the lenses. And the tarot is a lens. Archetypes are lens, lenses. that, And they're lenses that help us to organize experience and give it meaning. But there's not just one meaning. So if I do this, I will know the meaning of life. No, you won't. Mm, <laughs> no. no. 
that's a secret. Um, uh, that, but that, but there are these ways of seeing, these models of seeing. Richard Rohr's models for seeing are exquisite, uh, very very rich. I, and there are other teachers I've been with, but people start to, you know, here is here is the challenge with both the tarot or or astrology or or any of these things is that these are symbols that are interpretive symbols and if we say if we try to take them literally they have no power they have no use there so that and so what i watch is when people are learning sacred contracts and archetypal wheels or any of these tools they're so determined to find the right way to read them mm. like way to read the tarot cards like there is a right way right and these are not black and white they are interpretive and they're reflective and they're intuitive and you can't read them the way you would read a math problem and come up with the right answer the right solution and uh, any of these tools in the hands of people that think there's a right solution well then you'll have a tarot fundamentalist yeah. Or you'll have Rowan Mace fundamentalist. And and it's it's like if you're a fundamentalist Christian, you can't possibly comprehend the dark night of the soul. It's just not possible because it's in symbols. And it's not possible with with the um and with the uh, interior castle. It's not possible with Rumi, uh, with any of these people who speak in images and symbols. A literal a literal Muslim can't comprehend Rumi any more than a literal Christian can comprehend John of God. It ju you just can't, because you're reducing it to Kronos, and A plus B equals C, and that's not the, they don't see that way. That's not what they're saying. They, uh, it's an interesting thing about the tarot, is that it's it is a guide into an insolvable mystery that the thing about god is that i is that you you can know god and not know god because you can't ever exhaust it it's a mystery any more than you can know yourself completely because we're a mystery the, not one that's solved but the one that we get greater insights into that we have aha moments that take us deeper but don't exhaust. You can't exhaust the tarot. You can't exhaust the archetypes because they're not linear and they're not finite and they're not meant to be. Once I go through the grand, the is it the grand arcana? The what are major arcana? Uh, once I go through the major arcana, well, there you go. It's like the twelve steps. Well, once I get through the twelve steps, I'll have this addiction licked. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but each. Each time through, each reflection on the tarot or the archetypes or astrology appro approached wisely holds up a mirror of sorts that, that is a reflection that can give us insight, sometimes revelation, into what's going on with our lives. But it's not a resolution. It's not an answer. No, it's the to me, it's the power of this. It's the power of story. And... Um we were actually just talking about the fundamentalism of, of anything, which 
there's fundamentalists for everything from scientists to, you know, Christians to tarot fundamentalists. And, and I don't think any, any of the the previous podcasts that Sundar and I have hosted have, have been, you know, we never really directly addressed it, but we certainly talked about the symbolic movements and, Mm -hmm. um, the potentialities and meanings and, and also to really look at each stage as, you know, reminding people that these things are, in a way, they're both they're both ordinary and extraordinary at the same time, and they allow us to connect to each other. If we're, you know, if you're able to see something symbolically that you know you're going through this process that maybe it was incredibly difficult or it required more of you than you ever thought you could, or it put you into relationship where things were, you know, either joyful or, or, or awful, that this is a part of the process. I yeah. think, to me, having models uh, like the tarot and others is, helps us integrate things into, into our lives. That this isn't, you know, it, it basically works with the victim archetype to kind of pull you out of the, oh, poor me, mm-hmm. this was done to me, to a more integrative this is included in the process of life. Mm-hmm. The, the, like uh, a lot of times when I've been learning with you, really embracing, you know, the, the moment where you embrace the grief and gratitude at the yeah. same time where you can, that paradox of the two at the same time, I think our ability to see things symbolically and to use a model is like astrology or the, the, the tarot to help us integrate it. And be empowered by it versus just say, well, you know, that was awful. I'm going to shut down. My life is over. Yeah. Um, which, which leads me to another film that I really, really wanted to talk about with you. And that is uh, a film from a number of years ago called The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. <laughs> and, I love hotel. I uh, love that Oh, I don't know the hotel, but I love the movie. I don't know. I, th- I don't know that there is an actual hotel. But uh, just to set this up for our listeners a little bit, this is a film directed, I believe, by John Madden. It came out in 2011 and has this stellar cast. I think, anyway, if you like, if you like Judy Dench, if you like Maggie Smith, Bill Nighy. I mean, there's really it's an ensemble film. It had. Um, uh, Dev Patel, who was uh, the star of Slumdog, Slumdog Millionaire, uh, mm-hmm. a very Oscar-winning film. But Jim, um, I remember seeing this film, and I recommend everybody who's listening to this podcast watch this film. It is lovely, and it really does um, embody a lot of what's happening in the tower, the star, and there's a lot of the journey happening there, and it happens in a way with that I think is lovely because it's it centers around a young couple in India, but also a set of septuagenarians. <laughs> These mm. are people who, you know, or they are in their retirement, you know, or what's supposed to be their retirement. And um, the story is woven together, and the, the, the story is told, I think, in just such a beautiful way. And Jim, um, you have just put out a course that talks about this film, and it's called Embracing the Grace of Change. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a brilliant title. Um, do, you, do you mind t- telling us a little bit more about the details of the film or the, the storyline and, and kind of what it well, meant to you? Well, the, yeah, the details are these people who 
who the the story of their lives if they as they as they've lived them no longer work. They've outlived their stories. They've outlived the myths or the fa- they've outlived. They've at the they're at a point when they didn't think they were going to have to deal with this kind of a challenge. You know, in retirement, where what you thought you knew is no longer true. For example, Judy Dench, uh, she's a damsel. She her husband never bothered her with finances, and he dies, and she finds out she has nothing. Maggie Smith is is like the ultimate British woman, and but the woman she's the British woman of that Britain doesn't exist anymore. And and uh, what is her way of the? It's sort of like uh, Maggie Smith's England would be like our America if we lived it like Leave It to Beaver. Mm. It's that anymore. And and there's a couple in there who who lose their retirement savings and and are also confronted with age when they move when when they're asked, do you want railings here, here, and here to help you get around so you don't fall? I mean, it's just... And, and then there's... You had mentioned uh, Tom Wilkinson, but he's lived, a, carried a shame and a heartbreak and told a whole, lived his whole life around this thing only to discover it's not true. Mm. But he's punished himself for something that isn't true. But he's made up this story, and I think what to me is is uh, important with embracing the ga- grace of change, and or you could say the grace of chaos, because their lives are all thrown into chaos. And what better symbol for chaos is India? Yeah, that I mean, India is uh, chaos. There, I was privileged to visit India, and. It's really not describable, and it can't be prepared for, at least by, you know, Midwestern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's an embrace of life there. I've told this story, but uh, to you, we were going into Jaipur and um, the middle of rush hour. Although you can't tell when it's not rush hour, but they told us this was rush hour, <laughs> and I mean. We're seeing things like people sitting cross-legged on the tops of buses and having conversations as they rock back and forth in a way that looks really perilous to me. You see three or four kids in school uniforms on a motor scooter. Uh, You see somebody ride by on a camel or an elephant, and they're all in the same road. And then I see coming up behind me a motor scooter and a man's driving it and as it gets closer you can see there's a woman on the back of it and she's wearing a sari so she's riding side saddle and he's weaving in and out of traffic like like a motorcyclist would here when you you know when you can use the white line and as they get closer we realize she's nursing her child <laughs> and totally in rhythm with his driving totally in rhythm with the traffic now, in this country, they would be arrested for child endangerment. <laughs> um, you know, the baby should have had a helmet and the seat should have been backwards. Well, they all should have had helmets. The baby what, wouldn't be on this scooter here. <laughs> I know. No, of course not. And so what happens is that um, I had this realization, uh, you know, you have to step around cows and you have to, uh, you, you step around things that are unbelievable and 
what is what I get that in our culture, to me, we're a lot, we're a culture of fear, and uh, they they just live life. Life's life, you know. We th- everything we're told all the time. Look at the commercials. That life is dangerous. You don't, you know, you can't think of life as dangerous as in you're in India. It's just life is life because it goes on and they do things as a matter of course that look like Cirque du Soleil acts, some of them. I mean, <laughs> so what happens, it really is chaos to a Westerner who's so, for whom structure and tidiness <laughs> are are so important and it's really overwhelming to go there and all of these people that go there they're all in their 70s they have to they have to deal with this and respond to it or die I you know I've told you this too I was diagnosed with cancer I can't believe it's 18 years ago and one of my doctors said Jim I I believe cancer is a, a challenge to change or die and a lot of people are more afraid of change than death. Mm. And I said, I'm going to try change. <laughs> but I've come to believe that that isn't just about being diagnosed with a terminal disease, terminal illness or, you know, a chronic illness, whatever it is, that we're being asked to change or die all the time. If we don't change, our spirits die. It, to the extent we resist change of the way things are going, we calcify and I think this the film, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, is really because it is an ensemble cast, you you get to yeah. see diversity in how each of them deals with it. So all they all essentially, with the exception of Deb Patel and his fiance, um, mm-hmm. all the 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 elderly, as it were, the older people in it, they all initially have the same situation where the plans they had made, on, awry, you know, the tower struck, the lightning struck, they all really don't have any choices. Um, right. And they all end up on the, in the same, you know, plane, they're on their way to India, and they, this is their only recourse, is to basically retire in India, where it is so much cheaper, the healthcare, etc., things like that. So, but how each of them deals with it, and how they voice what is going on for them, the diversity of those reactions, I thought was... Um, to me, the most instructive and the most interesting. And the course that you've put together, full disclosure, I'm the producer of the course, um, the course you put together is a really wonderful way for us to embrace the fact Mm -hmm. that, you know, the plans that we make today could be swept off the table, you know, in an hour, in a week. And I, I wouldn't exclude Dev Patel's character, Sunny, from this, because when you see... The best exotic marigold hotel for the first time. It looks like a crumbled tower. Mm-hmm. I that, mean, that it's is true. great disrepair, and his life, <laughs> his life, is, is like that Buddhist god you were talking about, Malepara. Is that how you say Malarepa, it? Yeah. Dev Patel's. He has to rebuild his every day. There's always something the matter, and there's one crisis after another. If not from his mother, his girlfriend, his girlfriend's brother there's one crisis after another and and what's brilliant at the end of that is and I, I haven't thought of it that way till just now when he's sitting on a bench with Judy Dench and he says well I have to wait till the crises I'm, I'm re interpreting it 
I can't tell her I love her until we resolve all these crises. <laughs> well, they're never going to be resolved. So if you wait to tell the girl you love her until there aren't any crises, you'll never tell her you love her. <laughs> because his karma is that things will... And he's very much the holy fool. I, I love his character. Um, the more I watch the movie, the more I realize he holds it together. Uh, Judy Dench's narrative is rich, but Sonny propels it forward, and he never gives up. Oh, look, the tower's fallen down. Oh, well, let's build a tower. Oh, he never dis he well, he gets close to despairing when he talks to Judy Dench. But as he says, you know, everything turns out all right in the end. If it's not all right, it's not the end. Which is, I think, the only way to approach the crushing tower. You know, that you can look at it as the end. Or as, oh, well, we better try something else. We better, you know, uh, and it's the thing about that tower, if I follow this image in a crazy way, when the tower collapses, oh, my gosh, we don't have the architectural blueprint, so we're going to have to rebuild it the best way we can, mm -hmm. and not the pieces are going to fit. Exactly. But and you're going to leave some of them behind. And that, it, and at some point, maybe that, and I, you know, I'm definitely in a place in my life where I'm seeing the old architecture no longer really working. Yeah. Um, that the as scary as it is, the 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 diving through is. I think Judy Dench in her voiceover says something about you'll either be crushed by the wave or you dive into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And, you know, I even look at this tower right now. I'm, I'm at an age where I'd like to simplify my tower. The tower that I live in is too big and requires more maintenance than I would like. But I look at how do I disassemble this tower without just putting, without abandoning it or something. Because I'm at an age where I need to simplify. Which all of those people in Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, they could be trapped in the tower if it didn't shatter. And I think there's one character in it, Jean, Mrs. Ainsley. She is, of, of all of the characters, the yeah. one that's most obviously clinging with, you know, her white knuckles onto yeah. the picture of the life that she uh -huh. thought was owed to her and her entitlement throughout the film. And she's just... I mean, for me, I have a great deal of compassion for her, but also at the same time, she's just miserable, and she makes everyone miserable around yeah. her. She's just angry that the story that she thought she would live is gone, and that to me is, is mm -hmm. it's like she is the, the warning. <laughs> she's the bellwether well, of, be careful. If, if I can return it to something, we have a substantial part of our country and our culture who is Jean. Mm. That they're furious that it hasn't turned out the way they thought it would. And and they need somebody to blame. She does it to, with her husband. You know, she can't see her part in it, so it's all his fault. He's a fool. He's a failure. And we see that this is a real crisis. I don't think just in the States, but it's a real crisis. There are a strong minority of genes of all ages too and that's yes, of course of course and and the idea of doing it a different way of seeing a, a different way through 
you know, I was thinking of a moment when, you know, if in a in a shipwreck you hold on to the pieces of the boat to float, but Jean is holding on to a block of cement mm. and expecting it to float, and that's not its nature. And that 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 to me, there's something that's been in a conversation with a lot lately with with friends is is looking at the current, you know, what the culture talks about and what you see of the the way people are raising their children or the way they're approaching life, that difficulty is to be absolutely avoided. Um, awkwardness. I mean, we really made, you know, this, this language of awkward and, and there's this, you know, the opposite of awkward is grace, you know, Mm -hmm. in, in, in linguistically you're either graceful or awkward and that we've made awkward the worst thing that can ever happen. And to me, that's ego language. Because you're uncomfortable, you've done something that you're embarrassed, there's humiliation, and that it is the thing to be avoided, or pain, any painful experience. You know, there's the trend of the, the trigger warning. And, I'm, and I say this with compassion, that it is, we, we will be triggered by things, and they are, will be very, very, diff, they can be very difficult to deal with, right? But yeah. And, well, you know, you talk about awkward and grace, and I, tra- ta- I like to talk about certainty and confusion. Mm. And people who live in certainty are unteachable. They're incapable of learning because they're certain that everything is the way they believe it to be. People who are confused are teachable. So when the tower falls, if you can embrace the confusion and learn from the confusion, you will grow. If you say, this can't be right, the tower wasn't supposed to fall, and... and you know, I'm going to stand in this position where the tower is supposed to be until the tower reconsiders. Well, it won't happen. Um, there's one other thing. I know we don't have much time, but I, I went to see Inside Out a second time. Oh, I saw good. It the first, I saw it the first time with a friend of mine who totally <laughs> didn't get it. But <laughs> what I realized the second time, and it shocked me, is that joy is an addict. <laughs> And it has to be happy and positive all the time. And this goes to grief and gratitude, that it takes her through the whole... She's afraid of all the emotions that she can't control, mm. that, would ha- that would cause her to have to be reflective, to have to, to examine things, so that by the end, when those little crystals are blue and gold, and you have grief and gratitude together... But I didn't realize how manic joy was. If ever there was a seven on the Enneagram, it's joy. <laughs> and and I mean, it's she's hyper. She's hyper. It's like she's had too much sugar, and or something else. And um, so it was fascinating for me to see that because that movie's about that. There are five towers that collapse in that movie. Mm, true. Exactly. You know, I hadn't thought about that till this minute. You know, you should never cut me loose with an image, yeah. but. Keep because, talking, Jim. This is great stuff. <laughs> but but if you look at it, Joy has all those towers neatly, beautifully decorated. And then the little girl, <laughs> the tower comes up, change, change that she can't manage. And her whole life has collapsed. It's shattered. And the pins that held it together, the, the, the pillars of family and... and Relationship, friendship. Yeah. What? Friendship. Friendship, they all shatter. 
And Joy has no idea what to do about this because it never occurred to her that everything wouldn't always be happy. And when the little girl at the end says that I'm sad, and I, I know I'm not, I love this, I know you don't want me to be sad. <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to be sad. I'm supposed to be your happy girl. It, it's just the second time through. It, it just moved me, really moved me, because all of those towers, or the, the I, I like to think of it as the four, four legs that hold the stool up, you know? Mm-hmm. And they shatter, and we can't stand. And Joy, what's interesting about Joy is she's trying to put it back the way it was. And when that um, imaginary friend lets go, you can't put it back the way it was, and you're not supposed to. And he gets it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's a brilliant movie about the tower. It is. You may, that's an excellent point. I've been thinking about that film a lot lately. I've only seen it the once, but I really, really, really want to see it again. And it's funny because I got part of what you're talking about in the relationship of between joy and sadness in the film. And the fact that I found myself in the film rooting for joy, right? Because that's what we do, especially in our culture. That, that like, oh, oh, and I kept, you know, you see sadness kind of starting to touch things and turning them blue. She's adding her sadness to them. And I'm like, don't do that. Yeah, don't. Yeah. And it's the same thing that Joy does. She pulls her away and says, here's the little circle that you're in. So she's, I mean, psychologically, she's going to compartmentalize. She never wants to get rid of her, though, which I think was a really brilliant way to handle it in the, in the it's film. Like Robert, you know, it's like Robert Bly's book about the shadow where he says, oh, let's just put sadness in that bag that we're going to carry on our back and don't know that it's there. Exactly, exactly. I was so happy and so surprised to see that film. And actually, it was interesting enough, I got to see it on the Pixar campus. And so some of the filmmakers came out and talked about the film ahead of time. And the woman who was the production manager, who she said, you know what, I've seen this film, like I cannot tell you how many times from beginning to end. And she says, do you know what? To this day, every time I see this movie, I find something new. Sure. Um, and, and she didn't talk about what the movie was going to be thematically, but she talked about sort of the, the ideas behind certain um, parts of the structures, like those islands, the towers. Um, and then after, after I saw the film, I cried like a baby, of course. I realized that the, the main point that I think is really, really important in our times um, is honoring of all of it, you know, everything, the sad, yeah. sadness, the anger, and that we, we, have, we, we worship joy like the character in the film and we worship happiness as being the only thing that's really valuable and that all the other ones can just, we can just deal with those in order to support, you know, yeah. this, this happy, joyous feeling and that we, we will literally demonize anything that is difficult or awkward and And, we don't integrate it we're not integrating it um and it's not valued and there's trigger warnings about everything and i'm my you know don't let your child do any go through anything difficult and i that just scares me a little bit i don't think we can be in relationship with each other and be 
you know, go through the evolution I think we're pulled to if we aren't working with all of these difficult things. Well, I have a, one of my closest friends, one of the people I most respect in the world, a man named Skip Chasey. He is a, a grief counselor. I mean, he was trained as one, uh, particularly during the AIDS crisis, the worst of the AIDS crisis. And he said this to me, and, and it makes so much sense, is all change brings loss, and mm. all loss must be grieved. And if we don't grieve it, we don't, we can't integrate it into who we are. Mm. And so even good changes, even change, like going off to the college of your dreams, you're going to grieve leaving your family at mm. home or your friends, you know, it's change. Um, so all of it, uh, uh, you know, getting elected president of the state, president of the United States brings the loss of the freedom to drive a car. And, oh, great, we're going to be on an island where I can actually drive a car. Yay. Um, so that greed, there, there's always loss with any change, no matter how positive the change. And unless we recognize that and respect it, which I think in, in Marigold Hotel, Judy Dench's uh, character does the best. Uh, it's interesting when she calls her family. And they're, they love her, but she's, they're basically her past. Mm. They're not relevant. I mean, she loves them, but there's no life for her there. And she probably never would have predicted that. No, and you can't. And I think that being present through the process is something that is really, it's nicely shown in that film specifically. It, um, being present with, you know, that grief and that loss. And we actually are taken through that with the loss well, of one of the characters in yeah. the film. But also when she hangs up the phone after talking to her family and says, oh, I didn't realize it was 11 o'clock. I'm sorry. <laughs> and she's, when she leaves that phone booth, she's grieving. And they do grieve the loss of one of their friends. And, you know, the, the funny guy, I can't think of his name. but Norman. <laughs> Norman's grieving the loss. Norman and his counterpart are grieving the loss of youth. Mm. You know? And and that's something to be grieved. <laughs> I'll tell you. Let me tell you. Um, uh, but it's it's being able to to embrace the change, uh, to be able to say yes to it, and to discover the grace in it. The the great there's grace in chaos, just like there's grace in our wounds. So. Yeah. But if we go there, we'll never finish this. No, so. I know. I think I think we have. I think that's a good place to to leave it. The honoring just the the sheer amount of loss that we have in our yeah. in our lives, and it, to me, to me, what is most valuable is is just that honoring it and making it, including it. You know, getting our arms around it, as difficult as that is. There's there is so much that comes with that yeah, that I agree. connects us to each other and the compassion that we can have. You know, if you could empower that in yourself, you have more compassion for other people. So mm -hmm. it is mm -hmm. it is included. You know, there is the light and the dark together, and it's not necessarily gray, but it is distinct and integrated at the same time. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Archetypal Tarot Podcast. If you'd like more information on Jim, um, visit the show notes page at archetypist.com slash change 
and there you'll find more information on his amazing course called Embracing the Grace of Change, in which you can get 20% off with a special code there. And thanks again for listening, and we always appreciate your spending your time with us. So reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email. We'd like to know what you think. Until next time, have a great rest of 2015.